We're in the Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Remember the song by the birds, turn, turn, turn to everything there is a season. That was published back in the first time, 1965. I was five years old, but I remember that song growing up, hearing it. Put out by Columbia Records. And uh, this chapter was inspirational in their writing that song, actually. But um, let's read the first uh, 15 verses tonight, <coughs> and then we'll uh, see where we, we uh, go from there. So chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. It says, For everything there is a season in every time, in a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die. A time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. That is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. God has done it. So that people fear before him that which is already has that which is or is has already been which is to be has already been and God seeks what has been driven away. Uh, we're just going to go through this part of the chapter tonight. Uh, there was a uh, stadium back in Pennsylvania. Uh, it, it, it was called originally it was called Shide Park. That's where the athletics actually played. And the, uh, uh, what was the other team that played there? Um, Phillies played there in Philadelphia. And um, throughout the time that it was there, over 60 years, the story basically says that it was uh, the place to go for baseball in Philadelphia. But in the 1960s, that community, which the... uh, ballpark was in was uh, running down and uh, a lot of crime and things and and eventually the uh the state the stadium became known you probably know it as connie mack stadium you ever heard of that well eventually it just became dilapidated just bad they just let it go and uh when the the phillies finally played their last game there in 1970 they said at the end of the game, the fans literally tore the stadium apart. <laughs> they, they tore it apart. 
even when the game began, they said that you could hear the sound of hammering and sawing <laughs> all over the ballpark because vandals were cutting off pieces of chairs and benches and all kinds of things to take it with them because it was such a souvenir to have, you know, one of those things. The newspaper said this, Instead of dying like the graceful grand place it was, Connie Mack Stadium ended its life literally shrieking in pain from the torments of being torn apart. And what was left of the stadium eventually, it was damaged by fire, I think, the following year. And by 1976, the field was totally overgrown with weeds. And finally, the mayor at the time, Mayor Rizzo, uh, gave the order to demolish it. So they tore it down. And yet, in 1981, a ministry by the name of Deliverance Evangelistic Church bought that parcel of land from the city of Philadelphia. And they had a vision to reach out and share the gospel with people in that neighborhood that was kind of run down. And what was interesting was this, the church made a, a space for ministry and all this, you know, Christian education and everything. They even built some apartments for the elderly in the area. And uh, eventually they built an a actual uh, auditorium there. And it became the, the church where, where people gathered and worshipped. And there was one guy who was a historian, Philadelphia historian, Bruce uh, Cooklick was his name, and he, he wrote about this Scheib Park being in urban Philadelphia, and he borrowed the title for his book from Ecclesiastes 3. He said, to every season, or to everything, a season, and that's what he called the book. And, you know, as you read through these lists of things that God, through Solomon, lists off for us here in, in Ecclesiastes 3, there is a time and a season for everything in the economy of God, everything, including both a time to tear down and a time to build up. There's a season there to play baseball. There was also a season that included advancing the ministry of Christ. And everything is in its uh, God-given time. And, and that's really what we're talking about in this first section of chapter 3, is, is the idea that there's a time for everything. There's a, God has a purpose for everything. And God himself is referred to either directly or indirectly by he or whatever some nine times in these first 15 verses here in chapter 3. Because God isn't subject to time. God is what? In control of time. He transcends time. And, and the Bible tells us that God has set everything in its proper time. He has a purpose. He has an exact season for everything that happens. And that includes everything that happens in our lives. And yet, for some reason, human beings continue to deny that very truth. They think somehow that they are going to rise above God and take control of all these things, and they act as if they're the, 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 the master of their own destiny. And that's just not the way it works. And so the great conclusion that you draw from this passage, really, is that man can't control events. Can't control these events. They can't control even the circumcisions, circumstances that rise up in our life. A couple of different words there. We've got to be careful. Uh, circumstances of his life. Really, he's the what? He's the victim. He's not the master. Uh, that's, that's not how it works. And so we're going to look at five things here tonight about God and his relationship to time. And we see here in the first uh, eight verses... The first point here is that we have to acknowledge that God has a reason for everything that happens in our lives. 
doesn't matter whether it's good or bad. God has a reason. God has a purpose. Now, I know that some of you have gone through some horrendous things, and you say, well, surely that can't be within the reason and purpose of God for me. Yes, it is. And we're going to show you how we know this to be true. I mean, we all have had things happen to us in life where we find ourselves saying, really, God, why? (laughs) Why me? Why this? Why now? And we ask that question because we don't know the answer, but our faith tells us that God has a purpose for everything that happens in our life. Everything. I mean, why do you get a flat tire on your way to work in rush hour traffic? I mean, why? Why does that happen? You know, you can go through a a litany of, of things that you can question. Why does this happen? Why does that happen? But what he says here, really, right here at the beginning, he says, for everything, in verse 1, there is a season and a time. Now, it's important to understand that seasons and times are two different things. He's not just using the same word to say the same thing. Uh, matter of fact, in the, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew here, in the New Testament, we find words that depict things like uh, chronos, okay, that talks about a, a, a sequence of events in the New Testament. It's where we get the word, what? Chronology, right? A sequence of events. Uh, we also see the word uh, kairos, which means a, a season of time or an opportunity of time. And we see both of those in the New Testament. You see them in places like Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16, where Paul says, making the best use of the time. That's kairos. And he says, because the days are evil. Or in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, there at, at verse 10, it says, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him. Same, same word. And so God is not only bringing certain uh, things into your life at the proper time. <laughs> That's one aspect of it. But he's also controlling everything around us, minute by minute, hour by hour, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. That's what God is in control of. Now, when you look at this first section here, it almost is kind of, I don't know how it's written in your Bible, but in mine it kind of looks, you look at it and go, oh, it looks like a pretty palm. <laughs> what actually is, it's Hebrew poetry. And it's, it's written in Hebrew in a certain cadence, in a certain way. There's actually... If you count them, 28 activities that are listed here in these first uh, eight verses there. And they're, they're listed in basically uh, little couplets or stanzas, you might say. And there's, there's two, two in each verse there. So you, you see at the beginning, um, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, time to pluck up, pluck up what is planted. And so, you know, and it, it lists them right down through there, all 28 activities. What's interesting, we don't see this in the English, obviously, but in the Hebrew, what they tell us is, is that there's, there's 14 positives here. We can see that in English, and 14 negatives. But what's interesting is the, the last word of a set of four phrases actually rhymes in Hebrew with the next word. So, so, for example, like in verse 4, it says, a time to weep, right? Well, in Hebrew, there's a lot of words for the word weep. And they all kind of sound different. It's interesting that he chose a word that rhymes 
with the word built up. So it's, it's right, right next verse. And that's how it goes through the whole thing. It just matches perfectly. And you wouldn't see that in your English, but it's, it's kind of interesting. And, you know, you can see where they're the opposite. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up. Now, you get down to verse 5, and you say, well, that, what's that mean? That's a little weird. Okay, time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. What's that have to do with a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing? And so you romantic types are probably thinking, oh, it's talking about hugging your wife. No, it has nothing to do with hugging your wife or your husband. Nothing at all. Uh, Back in that culture, because the land was very rocky, it still is today. You go over to Israel, you see rocks and stones everywhere, in the soil everywhere. And that's what's so miraculous about how they've turned that whole area around into to, to one of the greatest agricultural areas in the, in the Middle East. But back in the day, what you would do is if you were going to invade a country or invade a tribe or invade a certain property, uh, you would beforehand, you would go over into their property and nonchalantly cast rocks into their fields. And what that would do is that would cause them major problems when they went to plant and, and, and plow and do all that. It, 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 it ceased their production. So now they had not only a threat of an enemy out there, but unbeknownst to them, now they had a threat of they couldn't provide food. And then at the right time, the enemy would attack. All right? And so... That's the idea of casting away stones and a, and a time to gather stones. Sometimes you would cast them into the enemy's field. Sometimes you might make a, a, a covenant with the enemy and say, all right, well, let's go pick up the stones. <laughs> we want you to be, you're on our side now. We have a covenant. So the more food you produce, the less you're going to take from us. So let's work together on this. So they would gather up the stones. And so the very next verse, when it talks about a time to embrace, it talks about that enemy coming in. Are you going to embrace them? <laughs> or are you going to say, hey, not yet. We don't have an agreement yet. That's really what it's talking about. There's a time to embrace. There's a time to not embrace. So it's not talking about giving your wife or your husband a hug. All right, it's talking about enemies and invading and whether you count them as a friend or a foe. You know what? God has a reason for everything. He has a purpose for everything. The very first thing there, he says in verse 2, a time to be born. Now, those of you who have children know that, you know, when you got pregnant and you went to the doctor and, oh, here's the date, right? I mean, probably more than likely, you didn't have your baby on that exact date. You may have, but usually they're not right. The doctors are off by a couple days, maybe a couple weeks sometimes. they, They just don't have the ability to be perfect in that. So, you know, even though doctors have come a long way, we still don't know the exact time when a certain person will be born. But God does. God knows exactly that I was going to be born on May 25th, 1960. I don't know what time it was, but he, he knew exactly what circumstances I was going to be born into. All that stuff. He knew all that. And the next verse, the next part of that verse, it says the time to die. Now, we don't like to talk about this, But he knows, God knows exactly the last day you will breathe your last breath here on earth. He knows. He already knows it. Augustine said this. He says, if the providence of God does not preside over the affairs of men, then there is no need to bother about religion. In other words, 
I mean, are you glad that God knows when you were going to be born and when you're going to die? I mean, who would want a God that, well, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I don't know what's going to happen with you. Uh, could be whatever. So, you know, you wouldn't want a God who's not able to control every event in the universe. So this talks here about three things. Basically, God is in control. It talks about the providence of God. It suggests the providence of God. That God really controls the affairs in our lives. Uh, a couple of verses, you can look them up or just I'll read them off to you. Psalm 115, verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. It doesn't sound like a God who's sitting up there in heaven worrying, oh, what's going to happen next? Uh, or Psalm 135, verses 5 to 6. Psalmist writes, For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Verse 6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth in the seas and all the deeps. doesn't matter where you go. God always has his way. Or Psalm 139, verse 16. We know this verse well. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Before you were even a glimmer, in your parents' eye, God knew exactly when you were going to be born, how long you were going to live, when you were going to die. Every detail of your life, he knew everything about you. I don't know why we have a hard time grasping this or believing this, but when we come down to practical Christianity and living our lives every day, sometimes we live our lives as if God is not in control. And we worry and we fret about all kinds of things. So you can see where this kind of understanding of the providence of God and the understanding that, you know what, God has a reason for everything that happens in our life can really be revolutionary in the way you live your Christian life. But why is it difficult for us to believe this? Well, I think one of the reasons, easy reason, is because God's invisible, right? When I wake up in the morning, I don't sit down with Jesus at the breakfast table and have breakfast with him. He's not there. You know, if, if you think you do, then come and talk to me and we'll, we'll talk about that. But, that, you know, that doesn't happen. Okay, that doesn't happen today. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're challenged when we're, okay, this God who's so awesome and so powerful, he's in control of everything, and yet, I've never seen him? Really? You want me to believe that? I think the other thing that, that kind of plays into the, difficulty of understanding the providence of God and really believing that he's in control of everything in our life, everything, is our ability to, to choose. Our ability to choose. The freedom that we have to make choices every day. We have that freedom. I mean, I can close my Bible right now. That was my choice. I can open my Bible. That was my choice. I'm not a robot. We're not robots. And yet somehow, God <laughs> takes all those choices that we make. And I mean, obviously, God knows everything from beginning to end, so he already knows the choices we're going to make. But what's interesting is, whether you like it or not, that, that proves that he's in control. I mean, the idea that he knows everything. He knows if I'm going to tie my left shoe before my right shoe. He's not up in heaven making me tie my left shoe before my right shoe. So we have a hard time understanding that God's in control of everything, and yet why can I 
if I want to run over and, and smash through that window, I could do it. Unless one of you stopped me. You know, that would be my choice. It would be a stupid choice, but I could do it. All right? And so that plays into that too. And it's hard to understand that. It's hard to bring those two things together. Especially in the area of our theology, right? When it comes to understanding our salvation. Because God clearly tells us that he chose us in Ephesians before the foundation of the world, does he not? That's what he says. Before the world was even here, I chose you. I set my love upon you. I picked you to be my own. I picked you to be on my team, if you will. And yet, all of us came to a time in our life where we exercised our own volition and we cried out to God and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. At some point. You know, God didn't say, well, I chose you. Now I'm going to make you believe in me. You know, I'm going to drag you into heaven. I know you don't want to go, but I chose you. You're on my team anyway. That's not how God works. Somehow, miraculously, he works through our volition, through our choices, and his will is carried out. And that's what makes our salvation so incredible. The idea, first of all, that God would choose us is amazing. But then secondly, that somehow he works in our lives to bring us to that point of decision. See, and you, you have to teach both of those truths. If you don't, then you're, you're, you're barking up the wrong tree. Either you end up in a man-centered salvation and say, well, the only reason I'm saved is because I chose God. And the only reason God chose me is because he knew that I was going to choose him. That's wrong. That's not what the Bible says. How could you choose if you weren't even here yet? It says before the foundation of the world. Now, some of you are older, but you're not that old. It's impossible. But on the other hand, you can't say, well, there's no human will or will or choice. None at all. God just dictates everything. And if he says it, that's it. So let's just pack up our bags and go home. Why even pray for anything? Because God's plan is always going to be carried out. Why even pray for your lost neighbor? If he's going to get saved, he's going to get saved. Where does that lead you? That leads you down the road of what? Fatalism. Right? Just throwing your hands up thinking, wow, God's this cruel monster in heaven that's just like a cruel dictator. That's not what the Bible teaches either. So you have to be able to take two truths and say, okay, somehow in the mind of God, this makes sense. In in my mind, it makes no sense at all. And when we get in trouble is when we try to use our sinful logic to try to figure it out. That's where we get in trouble. So you have to understand that God is in control. it's, It's because of the providence of God. And I know that it's hard to understand. I know whether you like it or not, this is what the Bible teaches, that God is in control. Uh, David said in, thir- in Psalm 31, 15, he said, my, time, <clears throat> my times are in your hand, speaking to God. Or in Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, it said, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And yet that's exactly what we do in our own Christian lives sometimes. Something happens in our life and we go, why God, why did you let this happen? I don't know, but it happened. I remember a couple that 
accidentally hit a bicyclist, a little child, and killed right here over on uh, Alameda. And uh, the chaplain went out and was dealing with this couple, and we're sitting right here at this table, actually. They needed some counseling. They were just really troubled by this. And it was, wasn't the husband's fault. It was just a, you know, the kid wasn't in the bike lane or whatever, and it was a wet morning, and he was driving a construction truck and ran over the child and <laughs> killed her. And uh, the dad just kept on saying, why did this happen? Why would this happen to me? Why would God allow this to happen to me? And I said, you know what? As horrible as this situation is, I don't know. But it did. So somehow, God is going to reveal more of his grace to you to get through this situation and put things in perspective. And maybe 20 years from now, you'll run into somebody else that has the same thing and you'll be able to minister. I don't know. I have the slightest idea why God allowed this to happen to you. Um, Because he didn't do anything wrong. He's just driving to work. So, you know, we have to really understand that we can't, we don't have the right really to go to God and say, well, well, what have you done? Why do you allow this to happen? But the second thing it suggests, it suggests a provi- the, the purpose, not just the providence of God, but it, it suggests the purpose of God. That not only does God allow certain things to happen, but listen to this, God has a purpose. And it's very specific behind everything that happens in our lives. Um, you know, some people try to get out of this and they'll say, well, uh, you know, my understanding is God has an overall purpose. A general purpose, but not a specific purpose. But that's not what the scriptures teach us. It just doesn't. He has a purpose behind everything that happens. Think of Joseph back in Genesis chapter 50. Remember his situation. His brothers, you know, throw him in the pit, and then he gets carted off to this whatever. You know, and his brothers end up in this land looking for some food, and there's Joseph, Right? And he, end, he concludes in verse 20, chapter 50 of Genesis, he says, as for you, speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me. In other words, you, everything you did to me was evil. But what? God meant it for what? Good. You don't understand that when you're going through it. Because it wasn't good to be, for him to be thrown into a pit for no good reason. But he says here, hey, you know what? The good was, it, 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 it was about the many people that should be kept alive because I'm here to give you guys food. <laughs> now, he wouldn't have known that that many years later. You know, like Joseph, think of Esther, who's the, the Jewish gal who became the queen to that Persian monarch. She gets a message from her uncle Mordecai in Esther 4.14. Basically, at the end of the, the verse there, he says, And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. In other words, why did all this happen, Esther? Well, you know what? God has a purpose in it. There's a purpose in it. Or even in the New Testament, when you go to the New Testament, you look in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 16, and you see uh, Paul wanting to go out and, and minister the gospel. You would think, wow, well, God would be behind that. That would be a good thing. You know? They're, they're going to go and preach the gospel to people who haven't heard it. Look at what happens in verse 6. It says, And they went through all the region of Phrygia and, and Galatia, having been forbidden by God, by the Holy Spirit, to speak the word in Asia. They went out on a missions trip, and God sealed their lips. We don't know how he did it, 
but they were forbidden to speak, it says. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into uh, Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them once again. I mean, can you imagine being a missionary and, you know, going through all your training and whatever, and you get to the country where your heart is set on sharing the Lord, and God says, nope, you're not doing it here. I'm going to take you somewhere else. It's like, what? What's going on here? Or verse 8. So passing by Mysia, now they're, you know, over two here, they went down to Troas, it says, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So God had stopped them from doing all these other things and said, you know, I got a purpose in this. You know, a lot of times when things happen in our lives, we almost categorically determine that circumstances that are happening to us in our lives are bad. In our own logic, we look at something that happens and it's like, oh boy, this is bad. Why did this happen? I don't know why it happened, but God has a time and a purpose for everything in our lives. And so even over in uh, Acts chapter 17, Paul is preaching here to a bunch of pagans, a bunch of uh, secular people in Mars Hill at the Areopagus there. And in uh, verse 26, it says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And then he says this, Having determined, the ESV says, or having predetermined is a better translation, allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. What's he, what's he saying here? He's saying there's a reason why there's a place called Macedonia and Mysia and Phrygia and Galatia. Do you ever think about that? Why is there the United States? Why is there Italy? Why is there Spain? Why is there Peru? Why, why are all these people all over the earth? God has a determined purpose for that. And he tells us in verse 27 why. Ultimately, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. So even all the nations and everything, you know, people get hung up on that. Well, why did God create all these different... Well, he has a purpose in it. And he may not necessarily let us know exactly why, but he kind of gives us a clear indication there. Or even in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, you know, as Christians, we're always, you know, Lord, please come back. Oh, Lord, please come back. You know, we want the Lord to return, right? I mean, even so, come now, Lord Jesus. I mean, that should be our desire. And then you get some people, I don't why isn't he coming? I mean, Paul thought he was going to come, right? I mean, and here we are, how many thousands of years? What's going on here? Well, he tells us in chapter 3, verse 9 of Second Peter, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. In other words, his promise is going to be fulfilled, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You know when the Lord will come back? The Lord will come back, I think, when the last soul is saved that will ever be saved. That's when the Lord will come back. Because until then, he's saying, hey, you know, I still got some, <laughs> some out there, and I'm working on them, they're coming, but they're not here yet, so we, we, I'm not coming back yet. Because everyone that is chosen in Christ will be saved. They will repent. They will be 
transformed. They will be justified. So God has an exact time schedule. Why is he delaying it? Out of grace. To be merciful to those who have yet to repent. Even in Psalm 37, verse 23, the psalmist says, the steps of a good man are what? Ordered. Ordered by the Lord. Not the life of the good man, but what? The steps, literal steps. God is not limited by anything or anybody in accomplishing what he desires to accomplish. So not just his providence or his purpose, but the last thing here, it suggests the power of God. Think of this. God can cause things to happen whenever he wants to. (laughs) To whomever he wants to. For whatever purpose he wants to. You know, don't buy into the the Thomas Jefferson theology. He was more of a deist than anything else. But, you know, he basically believed that God winded everything up and then he sits up in heaven and lets it unfurl, unwind. Uh, that's, that's not what the Bible teaches. God isn't some old man up in heaven bored. Uh, he, he's, he's intimately acquainted with all of our ways. And if you just think of the, the little things in life that happen to us, um, we forget the mind of God and the planning that must be involved in his purposes and, and, and what goes on just with one individual. I mean, for example, I mean, you know, I was driving one morning and I was at a uh, coming up on an intersection and the guy in front of me slammed on his brakes. And I tapped his rear bumper ever so slightly, but I tapped it. And I'm thinking, oh, and I had somebody in the car. I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> you know, this is not good. So you're all right. Oh, yeah, I'm fine. You know? So I pulled over. He pulled over. And uh, he was a uh, retired uh, fire captain out of uh, Foster City, I think. And he goes, you're all right? I said, yeah. Well, you hit me pretty hard. I said, oh, there's not too much. He had an older Lexus. Luckily, it was an older Lexus. But there was a mark on his bumper. And I thought, wow, okay. Uh, so I got insurance and everything, so let's just swap information. I got something in the car, so I really got to get going. So he, I took a picture of his driver's license. He took a picture of mine, and we swapped insurance. And he said, I'll give you a call. I said, that's, that's cool, you know, whatever. And he said, you know, if we don't have to go through the insurance, that'd be great. I said, yeah, that sounds better to me. I mean, I don't think it'd be that much. And I see, I get back in the car, I'm like, Lexus, a bumper, it's going to be a fortune. You know, I'm probably going to end up going through my insurance. And so, you know, day goes by, two days go by, and I'm thinking, oh, this guy hasn't reached out. I wonder what's going on. Finally, he, about three days later, he calls me in, at the church. And he said, hey, Steve, this is Mike. And uh, I said, oh, yeah, you're the guy I hit. <laughs> I said, you get the bid, you know. Well, you know, I, I did get a couple, but uh, you know, I talked to a friend. Um, he goes, I'm, I'm a believer. That's what he said. I don't know if it was or not, but he sure acted like one. And he goes, uh, he goes, I'm a believer and uh, kind of new to all this, but uh, uh, I noticed you gave me a card and said you know, you're affiliated with this church. So I went on the internet and I looked it up and and uh, talked to one of my my lady friends who's really into this stuff. She's kind of helping me sort all this out. And uh, she said, Oh, she listens to you every Sunday afternoon at three thirty. You know. And uh, so he goes, You know what? He goes, I count you as a brother in Christ. Let's just forget it. And I said, no, no, no. I said, I'm going to give you something, you know. No, no, no. Let's just forget it. I said, are you sure about this? He said, yeah. So, you know, when you think of that, okay, that was a little, tiny little accident, okay. But, you know, God wanted to show something to me. He also wanted to show that other man something because he's the guy I hit. 
and it was God's purpose in his life. It was my, my life that we connected bumpers that morning, you know, and I don't know ultimately what the reason is, but I'll tell you what, I walked away with a very thankful heart to the Lord, better understanding his grace, um, things like that, you know, really kind of dial down and show us that, you know what, God is interested in these things. Um, Sunday after church, Mary McCafferty lost her car keys. She had all the kids, and they were looking at clothes downstairs in the, the, the Sunday school room or something, and, and uh, Abby, their daughter, lost the keys, and so she was kind of looking around, and I said, well, you had, you had to get in the church, so you have the keys to get in. They're on that ring. They've got to be down there somewhere. And we looked everywhere. We couldn't find them. And uh, I'm asking Abby, well, where were you? Well, we went back here. We went, you know, back in that little closet where the, you can go into the church and things. I said, what are we doing? Well, we're looking for more clothes. I said, all right. So I went back there and looked everywhere. I couldn't find them. It's just coming out, and three of the kids were there. Uh, actually, uh, yeah, Jasmine was there. Israel's daughter was there. And... Uh, the two boys, and I just said, I just said it out loud, Lord, help us find these keys, because I was at the end, you know, I'm thinking, I want to go home, you know, I want to be here all day, and I'm thinking, boy, her husband just had surgery, he can't come get her, so we're going to have to take her home, and and then have all the keys made, and I just said verbally, I said, Lord, help us find these keys, and I looked down, and there they were, and I was, I mean, I'm like, whoa, and Jasmine's like, what? I go, here are the keys, she goes, you just, you just prayed, you just prayed the prayer. I said, I know. I said, that's amazing. And I'm, I'm the pastor of the church and I'm surprised that this happened, you know. I mean, I, I walked away thinking, boy, I need to work on that. But, uh, it was, it was, it was truly, you know, and the funny thing was, Mary goes, you know, I prayed that prayer like 10 times. Why didn't he let me find it? I said, I don't know. But, you know, it was there. And, and, and see, God is, that's, that's just part of who he is. He's a powerful God. There's no accidents. There's no coincidences. I mean, think of Abraham and Sarah, right? Genesis 18, um, 99, 89. You're going to have a baby. Yeah, right. I mean, who wouldn't laugh at that, right? I mean, I'd be rolling on the floor. Verse 13, the Lord said to Abram, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child? Now that I am old, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Boom. Done. Because God can cause things to happen whenever he wants, to whomever he wants. He doesn't have to ask our permission. Or even Job in the Old Testament. You know, this poor guy went through the, (laughs) he went through everything. And Job 42, verse 2, he says, I know that you, speaking to God, you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I mean, doesn't that just build you? I, I, just, after doing this study, I was just like, you know what, God, there's nothing too big for you. It really helps you keep things in perspective. Uh, Job believed God, and you know what? As a result of that, God blessed him more than abundantly, just for his little speech there. Or in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28, Have you not known? Have you not heard? We hear this verse all the time. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. uh, His understanding is unsearchable. Sometimes you're not going to get it. You're not going to completely understand why God has allowed something into your life. But you know what? He did. So he must have a purpose. It didn't happen by accident. 
Or the song we sing, Jeremiah 32, 17, All Lord God, it is you who's made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is what? Too hard for you, too difficult for you. See, our God is a God who is in absolute power 100% of the time. Daniel 2.21, it says he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. You know, we've got a big election coming up in a year, a little over a year. Don't worry about it. I mean, God, you know who's going to win? Who God wants to win. That will be our next president. All, all this stuff is not a surprise to God. You know, and I, I'm kind of glad that it works that way. I mean, especially when you're dealing with politicians, right? Because, I mean, he can't trust them, any of them, as far as I'm concerned. So, I mean, it's like I would rather have God's man in there than somebody we think we would want in there. And it's up to him. That doesn't mean we don't go and vote and do the due diligence that we're called to do as Christians. But at the same time, please understand that he's the one who removes kings or presidents and sets them up. He changes times and seasons. I like when he messes up the weathermen. (laughs) It's going to rain tomorrow. (laughs) It's a beautiful day. What's going on? Well, it's going to be sunny tomorrow. It's pouring rain. It's like, wow. That's God just messing with the weathermen. You know, they think they got all this technology and they can control. They, they don't have a clue. You know, they have little indicators here and there, and they basically guess. So can God really cause anything to happen at any time to anybody? Absolutely. Absolutely. He's intimately involved in the affairs of our lives. Um, we don't completely understand that, but the Bible definitely teaches it. Well, that was all the first point. The second point, these what next ones will go quickly, but the second one is we must not only acknowledge that God has a reason for everything that happens in our lives, but verse 9 to 11, that we have to accept God's purpose and we have to accept God's control over all that happens. You know, it's one thing to acknowledge God, God's hand in all this, but it's another thing to get to the point where you're accepting it. Um, you know, you'd think after you cover all those 28 activities of man that he lists off there, in the, the first several verses, back in Ecclesiastes 3, uh, look at what he does. He asks the question. You know, he gets all the way down to verse 8, and then he says, okay, all this is true. The time for this, time for that. Well, what gain has the worker from his toil? He has a very practical question. What does this matter? What does this matter? And then he goes on and he says, I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He's made everything beautiful in its time. In other words, he's asking the question, if God is in control, what advantage is it to think that we're going to change anything? That's the question he's asking. Exactly. (laughs) And so Solomon's answer to that is that God is, is behind everything that happens. Therefore, you have to accept it. Um, our questions are not always going to be answered on this side of glory. God sometimes knows we probably couldn't handle the answer. But when we adjust our thinking to this kind of direction of life, it really affects the way you think. When you begin to realize that God is in control 
and you understand that you know you're you're willing to acknowledge that you're willing to accept that how does that affect us what affects us in our evaluations look at verses 9 and 10 look at 10 i have seen the business that god has given to the children of man to be busy with he's made everything um, beautiful verse 11 in its own time see this is a perspective of someone who really understands the idea of uh, Romans eight twenty eight. Romans eight twenty eight. I mean, it, it's so important, you know, that you know what that God, that for those who love God, He works everything together, for what for good, to those who are called according to His purpose. It doesn't say everything is going to be good, but He says He's going to work everything out for good. That means the good report from the doctor, and that means the bad report from the doctor. That means the promotion, and that means the unfortunate loss of a job. Um, Think back all the way to the beginning when God did all this. He created everything. Genesis 1.31. What does it say? He made everything, and he looked at it, and he said what? It is good. It's very good, right? It's good. Everything around us comes from the hand of God. He's provided it for us. Why are we complaining? Why are we griping? And I think sometimes the reason is is because we're looking at, at, at the wrong side of, a, of, of a, the tapestry. You know, where, do you ever see a tapestry and you look at it? Yeah. And then you go behind it and what do you see? All these threads and, you know, material all balled up. But the front of it looks beautiful. <laughs> see, so many times as Christians, we forget to look at the beauty. And all we're doing is looking at all the knots on the back. And this is why he has to really point out here that God made everything beautiful. The little chorus, something beautiful, something good. All my confusion, he understood. All I had to offer him was what? Brokenness and strife. That last verse says, but he made something beautiful of my life. What an incredible truth. And see, we don't always see God's reasons. We don't always see the, the purpose maybe behind what God is doing. But we view what happens to us very confidently when we understand that he has a purpose, that he is in control. That, that helps us through those times. So it affects our evaluations. It also affects our expectations. It says in the second part of verse 11, they're not only that everything beautiful, but he says that he has also put eternity in man's hearts, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. He put eternity in their heart. Everyone at some, some time or another thinks of the future. Don't you? I mean, we just do. I mean, even tonight, before you go to bed, you probably think, okay, what do I got to do tomorrow? <laughs> you know, um, and I think... That, a lot of times, the older we get, the more we think about it. And I think the more we think about it is because the closer we're getting to that day, <laughs> that appointed time when we're going to leave this earth, that eternity is a question that's hanging out there. But when you look at it in the light that God is in control of this, it's not some 
just coincidence, coincidental thing that happens, that God is in control of this, that you don't have to be worried about these things. Does it affect your expectations to know that God is in absolute control of everything? I hope it does. It should. It definitely should. So you have to acknowledge that, that God has a reason for everything. You have to accept it. And then third thing here, you have to appreciate the time that we have. Because <laughs> we're all allotted a certain amount of time. We don't know how much time, but, you know, in, in, in a way, that's a very gracious thing. Can you imagine if you were just given a little ticket when you were born? Here, this is the day you're going to die. Have a nice life. <laughs> I mean, who would want to live that, right? I mean, that, that would be, be nerve-wracking. So God in his grace, he doesn't, he shields that from us. He doesn't tell us when, when we're going to die, but we are going to die, and he, it's an appointed time. And so we only have a limited time here on earth. And the Bible describes it that way, does it not, of mere vapor, you know, it's, it's just something that's here and gone. And so if God is in control and he knows all the days of my life, the question is, what should my reaction be to that truth? Well, he kind of points out, you should enjoy life. <laughs> enjoy life as a gift from God. That's what it is. It also points back to uh, verse 24 of chapter 2. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. You know, there's a lot of Christians today that walk around with that, you know, ashes on their head and they're, woe is me, you know, just waiting for the Lord to come back. And, you know, Eeyore, Eeyore. What a sad testimony for Christ. I mean, think of this. I mean, we're supposed to model the life of Christ. You think of Christ. I mean, from the very beginning of his birth, he knew why he was here. He knew every event that was going to happen in his life. He knew how he was going to die. He knew how it was going to feel physically, excruciating pain. He knew how it was going to feel spiritually, have his father turn his back on him. And yet, he maintained composure through the whole thing. It just blows my mind. You know, we should enjoy life as a gift from God. It affects our attitudes. I mean, once the issue of our eternal destiny is settled, once we come to Christ and we know that, hey, we're guaranteed heaven, we relax. We don't have to be worried about who's going to be president or Turkey invading Syria. God's got this. Trust me. He's got it. Maybe a troubled time, power going out, fires, all these threats. I mean, you know, the enemy just works overtime to kind of create all this stuff to overwhelm us. I mean, my sister tonight on the way to church, she texted me, are you guys okay with all the fires? I'm like, well, there aren't any fires yet, but, you know. Well, don't you have, you don't have any power. Well, we had lost power last week once, but that was about it. It's not that big of a deal. But I'm sure it is for those people who've been without power for 12 hours, don't get me wrong. But God even has a purpose in that. So, I mean, you can't, you know, your attitude has to be encouraged with this. You can enjoy life as a gift from God when you take this kind of a reasoning. And it also should affect our actions. Um, you know, Timothy is told by Paul in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, basically he's talking to people who have a lot of money. He says, look, people have a lot of money. You, you need to make the most of that. and You need to help whoever you can while you're doing it because you're only going to be there for a short time and you're not taking your money with you. That's my paraphrase of that text. But he says, you're only got a limited amount of time here. And you've got to do all you can. 
we have to enjoy what God has given us and, and really um, have the joy of the Lord in our hearts every passing moment. And we should seek to do good for the Lord and for His glory at every moment. I mean, we, we, don't, get to, we don't get the privilege of going back in time and reliving, you know. I know Groundhog Day, all those movies, whatever, you know, time, time war. It doesn't work. Okay, you can't do that. So once you live a, a 60-second minute, guess what? That time is gone forever, ever, ever. And so our actions should be all about what are we doing for the Lord, for His glory, for all eternity. Because in, in, in eternity, there's just going to be the souls of men and, and the word of God out of this life. That's all that's going to last. Nothing else. And so it seems that a lot of times when you talk to local church people in general, those are the two areas they struggle in in their Christian life. Isn't that funny? They struggle reading their Bible regularly and they they struggle evangelizing eternal souls for God's glory. I mean, they'll come to church all day long. They'll do all those things, go feed the homeless, whatever. But as far as really studying and reading the Word of God and evangelizing the lost, those are two areas. That's all that's going to last. That's all. So we really need to look at that. And then the fourth thing here, You have to apply these facts to our own attitude toward God. He says this in verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing nor anything be taken from it. God has done it so that the people people fear before him. Does that mean we should be scared of God? No. Fear. It's a a reverence. It's It's a worshipful attitude. It's an attitude of adoration. Because we really believe what's been discussed so far in these verses, it definitely affects the attitudes that you have toward God. I mean, to realize that God is in control of everything that's in your life and will ever enter your life, I mean, that has to affect your thinking. It's only when you begin to think that somehow God is not in control. Uh, that's when you begin to lose it. I mean, that's why Paul wrote, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, don't be anxious about anything. In other words, don't worry about anything. But in everything, what? By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, there you go, thanksgiving for everything, let your request be made known to God. And what will happen if you do that? If you just stop worrying about things and trust God, because he's the one that's in control. He says in verse 7, in the peace of God, which is an incredible thing, that's not just something you go down to 7-Eleven and buy, I mean, this is something that's granted to you by God, the peace of God, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. In other words, there's going to be times in your life when you were inundated with circumstances that should, by any rational mind, completely overwhelm you, and you should be on your back just going, ah! But you're not. You have a peace. And that peace is there because of Christ. You don't even understand it. You're like, why aren't, why aren't I reacting? You know, God gives us those times in life when he just gives us that inner peace. I remember one time my wife was down at Safeway shopping and she was in the car and she was, she was leaving and she had her windows down. It was a hot day and she had her purse sitting next to her. 
And she's waiting there on, I guess, waiting to get out on El Camino there in the line of cars. And some homeless lady comes up, reaches in the car to steal her purse. And I'm like, what did you do? She goes, I just rolled the window up on her arm. I'm like, you what? She goes, I just pushed the window and it went right up on her arm and she was stuck there. I'm like, are you serious? You really did this? And I go, so what happened? Well, she started to kind of ask me to let her go. And so I just let her go. I'm like, you did what? You didn't call the police? We're calling the police. So I call the police. Well, she's home now, right? Because I'm thinking she's going to do it to somebody else. So, and I had a scanner. So I, I, I call this into the police and, the, and the, even the dispatch lady. She's like, so, okay, your, your wife is being robbed? I said, no, this was happening like five minutes ago at Sequoia Station. There's a lady down there. She was waiting and, and I told, told him the whole story. And she goes, well, what happened? I go, well, she rolled the wind up on her arm. <laughs> and she started laughing. She goes, she did what? <laughs> I mean, she had the same reaction I did. She's like, okay, well, well, we'll call this out on the radio. Thank you very much. And she's laughing when she hung up with me. So I'm listening to the dispatch, and they're leading this thing out. And the officers are like, uh, so she, she still got the wind, car attached to her arm or what? I mean, they're, they're going back and forth on the radio. But I'm thinking, you know what? That wasn't, that wasn't a normal thing to do, just to think, oh, I'll just roll the wind up. Um, that was God intervening, giving my wife a peace in a very stressful situation. And you know what? I didn't understand why she did that. She didn't understand. I don't know. It just seemed like a logical thing to do at the time. So it, that peace will surpass all understanding. And then it says, it will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Guarded against what? Guarded against all the garbage coming at us from the world. See, when you realize God is in control, what goes on out there, it doesn't really matter anymore. It really doesn't. Because you realize, you know what? You know, okay, you go to the doctor, you get a bad report, oh, I'm going to die when I'm going to die. <laughs> it's not after the doctor. It's not a fatalistic attitude. We should take care of our bodies, you know, and blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, that's what's going to happen one day. And all the medicine in the world won't fix it. So we just have to accept it. And it gives you an incredible amount of peace. So when you apply those facts, it really helps you in your attitude toward God. You acknowledge that he is a reason for all this stuff. You accept it. You appreciate it. You apply it. And the last thing, we must answer to God for how we use, have used our time. It says there in verse 15, that which is has already been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. You know, he's really saying God requires an account of what is in the past. Uh, we're called to enjoy the time here on earth. We're called to do good with our time here on earth. But we also have to remember that, you know what? God will hold us accountable for what we do with our lives. He doesn't just automatically give us a pass. Matthew 12, verses 36 and 37, it says, I'll tell you on that Day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Ouch. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Or Romans fourteen twelve. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. There's going to be a day of accountability. It's not very reckoning for the Christian because our, our sins are paid for. But don't think we just get a pass on our behavior because we're a Christian. 
1 Corinthians 4 or 5, it says, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive a commendation from God. I mean, that's what we should look forward to. The idea that we can stand before Christ one day and receive our reward. 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So, you know, this is just, you know, a message that says, you know what, there's a, there's a time for everything, and God is in control of this. We're not. I mean, just look at the world. It's a mess, you know. Uh, but in God's mind, everything's just working out just fine. Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 9, I'll close with this verse because it, it, it reminds us, um, well, some of us, some of you, I should say. <laughs> uh, Rejoice, O young man, <laughs> in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart, in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. In other words, what he's saying is, you know, just because you're young, don't think that, oh, you know, I'll, I'll never, you know, my, my day is way off. You don't know that. Um, you could be on your way to heaven tomorrow or tonight. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. And we will answer to God how we've spent this great gift of life that he's given to us and that he's entrusted to us to live for his glory. So... But let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for this message. It's very practical, and Lord, it helps us just to keep things in perspective when it comes to this world and everything that's swirling around us constantly, and, and it just seems sometimes like pure chaos. But Lord, in your, in your eyes and under your hand, your providential, purposeful hand, everything is right where it needs to be. And Lord, we don't always understand that, but we need to believe that and we need to accept that because we do believe that you're an all-powerful God. And Father, we thank you for your, your providence in our lives that has brought us to a point of understanding who you are and your Son and the gift of salvation that we can have through Christ and Christ alone. And Lord, we just uh, thank you for, for setting your love upon us as believers, giving us a hunger to um, not just study your word, but to come out and study it together and, and to fellowship together and to pray together and, and to really um, see you work in our midst here in this place. Um, and Father, we just thank you um, for your grace, your mercy. We do pray for our president, vice president, and those in authority over us. We pray during these times, Lord, um, that you would carry out your purposes. And Father, just uh, pray that you would uh, draw them closer to you. And uh, Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.